Thanks, Barry. Um, okay, so next we'll talk about the management of atrial fibrillation. Um, so typically, um, as uh, as if you've certainly seen our previous videos, we typically split management into conservative medical and, and surgical or interventional approaches. But with atrial fibrillation, uh, I think it's best if it's split up into management of stroke risk and also management of arrhythmia, uh, which itself can have a rate or rhythm control strategy. Um, and you can even then subdivide that into conservative medical and interventional approaches. Um, and the key overriding principles are ensuring that the treatment is patient-centered, holistic, and typically delivered using an effective multidisciplinary team. Um, so we'll talk about conservative management just generally uh, first. Um, so the first thing is patient education, um, ensuring uh, the patient is engaged in their condition, uh, arguably uh, is the most important thing. Um, and as we've mentioned earlier, management of those modifiable AF risk factors. Uh, and that's really key uh, to uh, reducing the re um, risk of AF reoccurrence. So weight loss and treating obstructive sleep apnea is really important. Avoiding excess alcohol. On the topic of caffeine, so there's a bit of a misnomer here. So it's unlikely that caffeine actually causes a greater AF burden, but it can typically worsen symptoms of atrial fibrillation. Uh, with regards to exercise, so advising uh, moderate exercise in patients, especially if uh, weight loss is required. But to note actually that high intensity and endurance sports are associated with an increased risk of atrial fibrillation. So if you're managing an athlete, uh, for example, uh, that would be relevant here. Uh, hypertension is a very uh, commonly seen risk factor. And uh, there's actually a 1.7 times risk of, um, of uh, developing atrial fibrillation in a hypertensive patient compared to a normal tensive patient. So it's a significant risk factor. And the ESC actually suggests that uh, AF could be considered uh, end organ damage from hypertension and, and actually advise a more uh, stricter target of 130 over 80 um, for, for patients with hypertension and AF. Um, it's also important to manage other comorbidities, so not just hypertension, but things like diabetes, cholesterol. So that's your kind of more conservative uh, management aspects of atrial fibrillation. And then when thinking about the more medical and interventional approaches, as we mentioned, uh, there's a focus on stroke prevention and um, arrhythmia management. So focusing on stroke prevention first. Uh, so this is the first kind of tenant is uh, assessing uh, stroke risk with a validated score, such as a Chad's vast score and the bleeding risk with a, a score such as the orbit score. Now, uh, if um, um, uh, follow, following that, uh, the, the recommendation is anticoagulation should be uh, indicated um, uh, if uh, the Chad's VAS score uh, is one or more, uh, uh, which is a, a non-sex based, so a score of one in a male or, or two in a female, um, and there isn't a significant bleeding risk. Uh, and the choice of anti-thrombotic uh, therapy is, includes a novel oral anticoagulant, um, which is typically first line, or a vitamin K antagonist such as warfarin. Um, and warfarin is indicated if um, the atrial fibrillation occurs with concurrent moderate to severe mitral stenosis, for which uh, NOAC is not licensed for, 
or also if the AF coexists with a metallic artificial valve replacement uh, where warfarin, um, where again, a NOAC, sorry, is not licensed for, where, where warfarin would be used. Uh, to note, antiplatelets are not recommended. Um, and that's kind of a more historical thing. Um, now, uh, one important point when assessing the bleeding risk uh, is a history of falls is not a great independent risk factor uh, uh, for, um, for sustaining an intracranial hemorrhage uh, when on warfarin or a NOAC. And there's a concern that um, often patients are inappropriately stopped uh, having a NOAC or, um, or, or warfarin uh, based on a history of falls. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this. Um, and there's one famous modeling study that had actually shown that uh, a patient on warfarin would have to fall 295 times annually for the risk of a subdural hemorrhage to outweigh the beneficial uh, thrombosis reduction of warfarin in AF. But of course, these things always have to be uh, judged on a case-by-case on -case basis. Um, and if there is a significant bleeding risk, it's important to treat any modifiable bleeding risk factors and then follow up the patients. Um, and really the point I'm making here is that um, there is a worry that we're under-treating a lot of patients uh, who should be receiving um, anticoagulation therapy. And it's really important to, to avoid that by really trying to optimize their bleeding risk. Um, so that's a point on um, anticoagulation therapy for stroke risk. Um, now, before I move on to uh, kind of more surgical approaches for stroke risk, anything to, to add there, uh, Balric, about anticoagulation therapy practically? Oh, I can't. About Barak, I think you were. Uh, to be honest, uh, no, I think you covered it, covered it very well there. Uh, I think DOACs are now, as you said, DOACs are now licensed as first line, um, unless there's another indication that they need to be on warfarin, is the take home. And yeah. yeah, as you said, bleeding risk, but no, I think you've uh, covered it all. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a surgical option uh, is left atrial appendage occlusion devices. Um, and that's indicated in certain circumstances. So, uh, if a patient, for example, is having intrathoracic surgery or cardiac surgery in any case, uh, and they have atrial fibrillation, um, uh, then, then, then potentially it's indicated as an add on. Um, it's also indicated if there's a high bleeding risk, uh, meaning that anti-embolic uh, therapy is advised, is advised against, but also if there's recurrent emboli despite optimization of oral anticoagulation therapy. And there are a variety of devices that, uh, that are, are used for left atrial um, appendage occlusion. Only the Watchman device has been compared to warfarin in randomized control trials. Um, and specifically, it's been shown to be non-inferior to warfarin for stroke prevention in AF with a moderate stroke risk. But studies are needed when comparing NOACs um, to left atrial appendage occlusion devices. Um, I think I'll, I'll, just, uh, I'll just chime in here. So hmm. left atrial appendage occlusion devices are actually a bit of my uh, pet topic, my <laughs> research at the moment. So I think for the purpose of your interview, um, you are... We definitely won't be expected to know much about left atrial appendage occlusion devices, but a five out of five candidate will try and put in somewhere that they are going to be assessing bleeding risk. And that's very important because if bleeding risk is very high, such that they cannot take anticoagulation, there are other options out there 
such as left atrial appendage occlusion devices. In your interview, you probably won't get too much time to go on much further than that. It's, it is important and useful to know uh, the patients uh, Rahul was talking about. And I think that's your key to know the, the two the two main times that you give you uh, put in left atrial appendage occlusion devices, which can be done at the same time as an AF ablation, are if they have too high a bleeding risk or they're carrying on having strokes uh, or arterial clots despite good DOAC or warfarin adherence. Um, the surgical the surgical occlusion device is actually a completely different kettle of fish, and I wouldn't get bogged down um, with them. But the yeah, those are the two those, those are two cohorts of patients that are appropriate for these. And actually, for interest's sake, actually, in a, because what what it means is once you have these occlusion devices, um, you needn't take lifelong anticoagulation because they've essentially occluded the left atrial appendage, which is where all the clots or the vast majority of clots come from in patients with AF. So uh, in, in Europe and UK, in the UK, we only really do it for patients with high bleeding risk, and that's the only way it's uh, commissioned. But uh, in America, for patients who simply choose not to take long-term anticoagulation, they do actually say, I'll have the AF ablation and the AF and the occlusion device at the same time, and thereby uh, get rid of the need to take long-term anticoagulation. Um, which hasn't made its way uh, across the pond, you know. So I wouldn't be talking about that in your interview as well, just for uh, for your interest's sake. Um, okay. But yeah, I think your interview probably don't need to get that get on to saying that you know about these things, and that's already a five out of five points, I think. Okay, excellent. Um, okay, so so we've talked about stroke prevention, uh, including medical and uh, interventional approaches. Um, Next, we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, managing symptoms and specifically the arrhythmic side of atrial fibrillation. Um, and this can be subdivided into rate and rhythm control strategies. Um, and the management of this will also vary based on whether this is uh, an acute or chronic situation, which we'll discuss. Uh, so we'll first talk about rate control. Um, and the principle here is essentially leaving a person in atrial fibrillation, but targeting an acceptable heart rate. And generally that target heart rate is less than 110 beats per minute to essentially uh, avoid a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. Um, and actually studies have been shown comparing a kind of more tighter rate of less than 80 to less than 110, and there hasn't been any significant differences um, in, in, in outcomes, including hospitalizations and mortalities. So that more permissive, less than 110, um, uh, is, is acceptable. Um, there might be times where you aim for a, a lower heart rate. So for example, when the patient is still symptomatic at 110 beats per minute, or they have developed a, a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, or they have a device such as a CRT. Um, now, the choice of drugs to rate control an individual include a beta blocker, a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, blocker such as verapamil, diltiazem, uh, digoxin, um, and to note that that is less effective in patients with an increased sympathetic drive, um, and also amiodarone, um, which generally is avoided in the longer term due to risks of side effects. Uh, so when approaching uh, a patient that uh, you decide to acutely rate control, um, just to quickly touch on the algorithm which uh, one would need to know for their interview, 
if they're unstable, so specifically four four factors, if there's evidence of shock, syncope, ischemia, or heart failure, failure, one would DC cardiovert them. Um, now, the uh, otherwise the first line treatment is treating the underlying cause. That is always the first line treatment, um, such as an infection, anemia, correcting reversible causes. And then one would initiate the drug treatment, as mentioned, aiming for a heart rate of less than 110 beats per minute. And a couple of just practical points to mention. So if they have uh, no evidence of heart failure or no uh, significant comorbidities, a beta blocker or a central acting calcium channel blocker are typically first line um, and are preferred over other agents such as digoxin because typically they're faster to act. And they're also better in sympathetic drive states where a patient is unwell. Um, now, if they have heart failure with a reduced ejection fracture, uh, ejection fraction, sorry. Uh, centrally acting calcium channel blockers are typically avoided uh, based on their uh, more potent negative inotropic effects. In decompensated heart failure, this is where uh, digoxin uh, becomes more practically useful uh, because it has a, a positive inotropic effect. Um, in severe asthma or a history of bronchospasm, this is where you may wish to avoid beta blockers. Uh, and there's special scenario of pre-excitation AF, where there's essentially AF with an accessory pathway, DC cardioversion is always the first line treatment. Um, now, second line treatments, if the heart rate is not controlled, uh, despite your first line treatments, you can then combine uh, the, your initial drug with the other drugs. So if you start with a beta blocker, the joxin, amiodarone, and uh, the SC also advocate you can combine a beta blocker with a centrally acting calcium channel blocker, but there is a risk of complete heart block in that situation. So that's the, uh, the rate control uh, treatment. Balric, um, anything to add? Um, no, I think that's, that's very comprehensive again. Um, the things I just draw out and just reiterate there <clears throat> are that if you're, if you I think there's a difference in inpatient management of someone with a uh, AF from rapid, rapid ventricular response versus general outpatient rhythm control. Um, so the thing you're going to really get asked about rhythm, with, sorry, rate control, sorry. And with rate, with rate control, what you're really going to get asked about is likely an inpatient. Uh, and I think that's the key thing. So in my head, it would be think about reversible causes and treat those first and foremost. If this is de novo AF, then assess the patient to see whether there's any signs of hypotension or relative uh, or, or cardiac failure um, and the first would be the first would be a reason that you'd the first would be and there'd be reasons for considering cardioversion <laughs> then the next the next thing you'll talk about the rate control that you've uh, you've discussed um, and he should rule is worthwhile talking now about now about the 48 hours and cardioversion anticoagulation uh, yeah yeah um... Well, why don't you carry on that then? Um, so, so, I mean, people always get really hung up on this and it's, uh, it's really not too, not too difficult. So if you've got a patient who is, you're thinking of cardioverting, um, if you're, you're going to cardiovert them very acutely, i.e. now in the next half an hour, if they're very hypotensive and it's all because of their AF, well, that's very infrequent. The other patients you, the other cohort patients that you cardiovert for AF, as an inpatient fairly acutely, are patients who, are, who have got heart failure, which you think is due to their AF, 
and they're decompensating, right? They're not going to get much better. And you need, you want to ideally just get them out of their AF. Now, the point about this anticoagulation of 48 hours is that if someone has been anticoagulated sufficiently, um, if, if someone has had onset of their AF within the last 48 hours, and you have to be absolutely certain about that, then they haven't theoretically had enough time for thrombus to form. So you could safely cardiovert them without needing to uh, anticoagulate them beforehand. But in practice, so you, just so you know, most patients, um, we would likely as not try and create a space in the cath labs or in theatres and just pop a TOE down first to make sure they haven't got a thrombus in their appendage and then, card and then cardiovert them because they're rarely ever that until we need to go straight away. But obviously, if this is an absolute emergency, you can kind of just cardiovert straight away. But um, that's the rationale behind the 48 hours, uh, the 48 hours point. Um, yeah, and I think the other points would be, I'd, I'd be, although the ESC do advocate, I've never ever seen it used to use beta blockers and wrap them together just because the risk could be complete heart block. Um, so I'd put a lot of caveats in it if you are going to mention it in your, in your interview. Um, I would just go simple beta, beta blockers, sopralol orally, metoprolol, IV, uh, and then digoxin, or the other way around if they've got hypotension and use digoxin first because it's a uh, positive anatropic. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so next we'll talk about that rhythm control um, arm of, of management. Uh, um, so indications in chronic AF are to reduce symptoms if people are symptomatic uh, with AF um, and if they're symptomatic, therefore to increase their quality of life. Um, now, in terms of prognosis of, of rhythm control strategies, there's actually no evidence that restoring sinus rhythm alters long-term outcomes. Um, however, if you um, stay in AF for longer uh, and there's subsequent atrial remodeling, it does make it harder to get someone back into sinus rhythm. So getting someone back into sinus rhythm can logically re reduce their, um, the rate of atrial remodeling. Uh, but as, as I mentioned, studies haven't actually shown any uh, outcomes longer term um, uh, that, that differ. Uh, and factors where you'd favor, favor a rhythm control strategy are uh, essentially a patient of a younger age, if they're, if they're symptomatic for uh, atrial fibrillation, if it's their first episode of atrial fibrillation uh, and there's a shorter history, uh, if they're developing a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy uh, um, due to uh, an inadequate rate control uh, strategy or, or difficulty with rate control. Uh, if on their uh, imaging, they have a left atrium, which is more normal, i.e. there's limited atrial remodeling, and therefore a rhythm control strategy is more likely to work, that would be another indication. Um, and also if AF is precipitated by an acute event, and as Balric mentioned, has occurred within 48 hours. Um, now, the types of rhythm control are essentially electrical cardioversion, i.e. DC cardioversion, or pharmacological cardioversion. So with agents such as uh, flecainide uh, and propofenone, I can never pronounce this right, propofenone, um, if there's no structural heart disease, or if there is structural heart disease, amiodarone. Um, and as we touched upon the main risk, if there's a thrombus typically in the left atrial appendage, uh, there's a risk of stroke. So uh, you can use rhythm control within uh, 48 hours of onset of AF, and you have to be very confident that that's the case. 
otherwise you can do a, a TOE as, as Barrick mentioned, um, or if someone's been anticoagulated for at least three weeks, um, that would be another, uh, that would be a long enough time where uh, patients should be, uh, should have that clot essentially removed by the anticoagulation. Um, and following elective cardioversion, one thing to just be aware of is there is still a risk of thrombus formation because AF can come back. And so the anticoagulation strategy uh, after cardioversion is everyone should have uh, for at least four weeks anticoagulation. And um, the ESC recommend actually, if, there's, um, if patients have a CHADS VAS score of greater than one that's non-sex based, they should have long-term anticoagulation. Uh, so that's some information about the rhythm control um, strategy. Um, Barrick, anything to add? Um, no, I think actually your last point about the fact that all patients after cardioversion need some form of anticoagulation for, for four weeks is a, a really nice five out of five point. And it's good to try and put into your answer if you're starting to talk about cardioverting your patients. Um, <clears throat> with regards to flecainide or amiodarone, I think if you... Uh, Propafenone, whilst recommended in ESC guidelines, is rarely used, so flecainide. So just know in your head, if you're going to go for pharmacological cardioversion, it's flecainide if they've got a structurally sound heart, or amiodarone uh, if you're not sure they've got a structurally sound heart. Um, and if you're going to start amiodarone, nice five out of five points is obviously, you know, it affects the lungs, the thyroid, uh, and liver, so you want to do baseline LFTs, uh, chest x-ray, and thyroid function tests. Um, and that again is just some five out of five points that you want to talk about when you're talking about those those medications. Yeah, that's a really nice point, actually. Um, I agree about it. Okay. Um, so uh, finally, we'll talk about those more surgical or interventional treatments. Um, and and Barrick has touched upon this already. So uh, the first point is about AF catheter ablation of the pulmonary veins. Um, and the indications for this, there, there are a few. Um, so they can they help reduce arrhythmia-related symptoms. Um, so they've shown that if a patient is fully asymptomatic, there's no actual long-term differences versus medical treatments for endpoints such as stroke or death. Um, but um, uh, compared to uh, this is comparing catheterablation v medical management. But if they're very symptomatic, um, it, it has been shown to potentially reduce symptom burden. Uh, it is also indicated when people have concurrent heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And the Castle AF study has shown essentially that uh, a greater time in sinus rhythm is associated with improved quality of life and improvement in LV function. So that's the, where the evidence has come from. Um, ablation can also be indicated when there's a concern about tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy and ineffective rate control. Um, and also in instances of paroxysmal AF, where trials have shown it can reduce the burden of AF compared to an oral rhythm control strategy. Uh, so that's uh, catheter ablation. Um, Before we go on to uh, yeah. uh, ablation, why don't I just talk about uh, AF ablation? Um, so a few, a few things I think it's important to know, first of all. So AF ablation has a success rate of about 60 to 70%. Uh, and success at the moment is just, just so you know, it's measured in, it's very binary. Does the AF recur or not? But actually there's more and more evidence and people are thinking about the trials. Should they look at, um, instead of just looking at binary, 
does AF ever recur or not, is actually should it look at the burden because AF ablation uh, does, for the vast majority of patients, tend to reduce the burden of AF and the burden of symptoms, uh, as you mentioned before. Um, and the if I'm if I'm in the interview and I was to talk starting to talk about catheter ablation for AF, um, I'd want to the things I'd be saying in my interview is that I want to be absolutely sure on the symptoms and its correlation to AF and the presence of any heart failure, and um, because that's uh, an independent reason to uh, be carrying out ablation for AF, um, as per the Castle AF study. And then the final five out of five points is to think about. Uh, whether this is appropriate for this patient is I'd like to understand a bit more about the permanence of the AF, i.e. paroxysmal persistent versus permanent, uh, and the size of their left atrium and their BMI and ability to tolerate GA. Those are kind of like the five out of five points. If you're, when in your interview, if you've got an outpatient with AF or you, you've got an inpatient with AF and you're going to talk about longer term ablation, this is the, those are the five out of five points. Um, and then finally, just for everyone's information, um, and I suppose it may come up in interview, after an AF ablation, patients have to carry on taking the anticoagulation. It doesn't remove uh, the need to take lifelong anticoagulation. Um, most consultants practice this, and those are the guidelines. Some do say, well, if it's paracetamol, and the patient can definitely say they're not having any more symptoms, then they can be sure that AF never is never coming back but by and large the guidelines of most consultants say if you have an AF ablation you need to still treat yourself as though you are AF from a straight point of view so you have to carry on anticoagulation and um, so that's just an important point to note. Fantastic okay uh, and the the last interventional approach we'll talk about is atrial ventricular node ablation and ventricular pacing and this is a, a, a less commonly used treatment and is more indicated as a last line uh, for example, when uh, rate control fails in the acute uh, in the acute setting, or whether uh, and when a rhythm control strategy can't be used or is ineffective. Uh, Barak, have you had much experience? Um, I think it's center center to center dependent. Um, I know at Imperial we don't um, have to do it that often, but other centers uh, perhaps you guys' approach slightly more. You might start getting yourself uh, twisted knots if you're talking about this in your interview, but. Um, for a space for your information. Uh, the whole point is if you ablate the AV node and you just ventricularly paste them, then you can basically control the, uh, the AV delay. So you can actually restore some of the atrial kick if you're, if you're atrially pacing them, uh, especially in those patients that have a CRT. Um, you want this in patients with CRT devices, you want to be ventricularly pacing all the time, so over, 19, over 99%, and that's very difficult in patients with AF. So to improve the effectiveness of CRTs, uh, those patients are sometimes put forward for AV node ablation, uh, so they can just purely rely on their CRT to pace. Yeah, okay. So uh, I think that that concludes our, our knowledge video for atrial fibrillation, and I suppose that the key point to make is that we've perhaps gone above what would be um, needed to know for the interview. Um, so with some kind of more uh, points for interest and to remember that when you are um, pro uh, projecting information at the interview, remember that you, you, you are aiming for the level of, uh, of an ST4. Um, 
but uh, hopefully now this video has provided you with a bit more information if, if you're ever kind of uh, asked more specific questions about a topic that you mentioned. Yeah, nice. I think just one point to sign off with um, in AF, when you're doing any of your practice scenarios or uh, practice questions, just you cannot forget anticoagulation, uh, both at the start of the case and at the end of the case, regardless of where it's going. Just make sure you've asked yourself the question, have I considered anticoagulation and bleeding risk? Because that's what um, really is the absolute no-no that you can't miss. So that's that's Balric's take home message. Mine is don't forget the modifiable risk factors because that that yeah, that's that's a really nice point too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that that really gets to the five out of five points. Really. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, oh, actually, can I just very quickly share? Uh, I'm just going to share screen. I promised I would. This is the. I didn't show this last one at all. This is the cardio oh. uh, app. So just so you know what you're recommending to patients. Uh, I just think you've got an idea for it. It's basically this small little uh, device that's smaller than a credit card that actually a lot of people carry in their wallets or you can stick onto the back of your iPhone. And then essentially what you can tell patients is whenever you get any symptoms, pop your fingers uh, on the on the cardio uh, hardware and then you have an app which gets a really good level of, uh, really good level of uh, ECGs. And those are things that cardio themselves analyze and you can also download for an analysis with your local friendly cardiologist. Uh, yeah, they're more and more frequent. Uh, and I'm sure they will become more and more frequent as years go on now. Nice. Great. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys. And uh, yeah, please tune in for the, uh, the upcoming scenarios as well. Bye.